Hello, space eggs! Whether you're tuning in from a highly developed cyber planet or living at the bottom of a void. This week on Physics for Fish, I'm talking to Dr. Katie Robertson about witches, thermodynamics, and the inevitable heat death that will one day face us all. I would love to know first who you are and what your relationship is with physics. So I did physics and philosophy as my undergrad degree in Bristol, but I kind of got into it when um, I was doing physics at school and there were loads of things I didn't understand, like what is an electron? And uh, my physics teacher was like, yeah, maybe you should like look into some kind of uh, philosophy of physics. And so that's how I ended up doing um, physics and philosophy as my undergrad. And that's kind of yeah, where I started the kind of stuff I'm doing now, which is working on questions about thermodynamics, which is one theory in physics. It's a kind of unusual theory in various ways. It's been called uh, the village witch of physics, for instance. I love that. Yeah, it's, it is a great uh, description of it. And the reason it's been called that is uh, it's kind of different from other physical theories, other parts of physics. But nonetheless, all the other theories come to her for advice and no one dares contradict her, the village witch. And part of the reason for that is that even though thermodynamics is not a fundamental theory it's about macroscopic things like uh, volume and temperature cups of tea cooling down in some ways like very mundane things it's nonetheless seen to hold the key for finding the holy grail of physics which is a theory of quantum gravity a theory of everything and in particular the place where people kind of think we should best go about searching for that is in the kind of arena of black holes and the really surprising thing is people think that thermodynamics, this theory that's meant to be about cups of tea cooling down and steam engines, uh, is meant to guide the search. That sounds brilliant. There's so much to get into there. And we were talking quite a lot about black holes last week. So if the fish are listening to all of these podcasts, they'll be able to piece together this jigsaw of what physics is. Yeah. <laughs> But let's start with the basics. You know, this is a podcast for hypothetical life forms who have never encountered physics before. Yeah. So what is thermodynamics? Right. Good place to start. So thermodynamics actually um, refers to thermo being heat and dynamics meaning uh, power or work, mm -hmm. which are kind of, we now think of as two different types of energy. If your cup of tea is hotter, then you think that the molecules in it are jiggling faster around. So we think of heat as being some form of energy in a certain sense. Yeah. Um, people used to think it was a fluid called caloric. And that as you, for instance, drill the hole in something, normally things heat up because of the friction. Yeah. Um, they thought that, that was the caloric being squeezed out uh, of the thing that you were drilling. So it's kind of, they used to think of it in a really different way. Yeah, yeah. We have different ways of describing the world. We can describe things according to physics or chemistry or biology. There's all these different kind of levels of description or you mentioned earlier kind of jigsaw of physics like there's different theories that kind of describe different areas and thermodynamics that describes macroscopic things so variables such as pressure and volume and temperature as opposed to like micro so you can imagine if you had like a box of gas in front of you like in a container you could imagine describing it by writing down the position and speed of every single molecule in that gas. There's there's 10 to the 23 molecules in a gas, which I think is something like more than there are grains of sand on the earth. Yeah. <laughs> so there's loads and loads of molecules in a gas. Um, and you could write down the position and velocity of each, each molecule. And that would be the kind of microscopic description. Or you can think about the kind of bulk properties, like what's the volume of the gas? What's the temperature of the gas? What's the pressure that it exerts on the walls? And so those things are like the macro variables 
when it comes to a giant box of gas, presumably it's much easier to think of the macro properties rather than the micro. Exactly. So one thing you might think is a bit surprising is that, you know, why is it that we don't need to know all the information about every single molecule? Why can we just use these macro variables? And that's a kind of interesting question about how the puzzle of physics all fits together. Why is it that we can ignore some features that don't matter? But it's a really successful macro description. Um, I guess one kind of, you know, local example, because I'm in Birmingham and it's just been the Commonwealth Games. And Birmingham is famous for industry, is that, you know, thermodynamics was invented in the Industrial Revolution, um, in particular when people were trying to understand steam engines. So steam is like a box of gas. And uh, if you heat up your box of gas, you put it under a cold fire, for instance, then the heat flows from the fire to the gas, the molecules jiggle around faster and faster. And you can use that to kind of push a piston such that then you can make the kind of wheels of your steam engine move. So the idea is that by making the gas hotter, it then pushes against that piston and makes the whole thing move. So that's that's the kind of historical origin of the theory. But yeah, it's this macroscopic theory uh, that describes things like boxes of gas and maybe other types of systems as well. All right, so I've heard that there are some laws involved. Yeah. Um, everything's all about <laughs> the laws. Yeah. So what are the laws of thermodynamics? Okay, so um, normally you'd think with laws, we'd start with law number one. Yeah. But thermodynamics is a bit unusual. First, they started it with the zeroth law, um, <laughs> and then they later realised that, in fact, there was another law before that. For added clarity, I made a jingle for each law. So we can start with the, the minus first law. Minus, minus, minus first law. The minus first law says that systems will reach equilibrium, and equilibrium is a state where nothing changes anymore. So um, you can imagine putting your gas in a box, maybe you have a partition in the middle of the box, you take out the partition, the gas will expand to fill the kind of new volume that it can explore. And uh, after a while, it will settle down to an equilibrium. So certain things like the pressure, temperature and volume, they don't change anymore. Minus, minus, minus. Okay, so we've started at minus one, which is already unconventional. Yes. It feels like thermodynamics is a, a bit of an outlier. Yeah, definitely. The next law is the zeroth law. Zero. If I have two boxes of gas, A and B, and they're in equilibrium with each other, and then there's a third gas, C, and B and C are in equilibrium with each other, then that means that A and C are also in equilibrium with each other. So you can think of that as a bit like height, for instance. If I'm the same height as you, and you're the same height as your friend, then I'm the same height as your friend. So zeroth law can be framed that there are three cups of tea and they're all the same temperature. Three cups of tea, they're all the same temperature as each other. Yeah. How many other laws are there? I've got no idea. If we started at minus one and now we're at, we're at zero. Yeah, now we're at zero. Uh, let's only, well... There's kind of two and a half more laws because the final law is on a bit iffy ground. Um, so the next law is the first law, which says that the change in energy of a system is the change in energy due to heat flow plus the change in energy due to work being done on the system. Sorry, when you say work, you don't mean the kind of work that we do where we sit at desks all day. No, no, no. Uh, like mechanical work. So like lifting a weight, you can think of it as like, you know, the force exerted over a distance. So it has that kind of flavor. Great. So it's kind of telling you that there is this thing, energy, and it can only be turned into different forms that can't ever be created or destroyed, I guess, is one way of thinking about uh, the conservation of energy. So yeah, that's that's the first law. Which is actually the third law, but also the first law. Yeah, <laughs> confusingly, the third one you've come across, but labeled the first law. <laughs> and the final one 
well, the final full one before we have the kind of question mark one at the end, is the second law. <laughs> so the second law has so many kind of grandiose things that people say about it. Maybe the fish wouldn't have heard this quote, but it's a one that gets wheeled out a lot in thermodynamics. It's Arthur Eddington said, if you have a pet theory of the universe and it turns out that it doesn't agree with Maxwell's equations, oh well. If it turns out that it doesn't agree with experiment, oh well. But if it's found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There's nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. So Eddington thought that this had this really special status. Yeah. Uh, so what is it this law that everybody's so hyped up about it's kind of a bit of a letdown (laughs) like so the second law says that it's not possible to have a process where heat is transferred from a colder to a hotter body and nothing else happens and you might think well we kind of cool down things a lot of the time we have fridges maybe the fish also have fridges they have some kind of fridge hopefully i hope if they're having a heat wave like here they they definitely have a fridge (laughs) Um, so with no other effect is the kind of uh, crucial caveat. Sure. Um, and there's lots of different formulations of the second order. The kind of famous version is that um, there's a quantity called entropy and the entropy can't decrease. So this is a kind of consequence of those other statements I gave you, but it's the one that's kind of more well known. There's something called entropy and it can't ever decrease. It can only ever stay the same or increase. And that's the, the more familiar uh, version of, of the second law yeah uh, we, we've come across entropy a little bit um the first podcast we recorded was about time and so ah. the entropy was one arm of that conversation mm-hmm. i definitely want to come back and talk more about entropy as well but firstly should we talk about the the sort of dodgy half law uh, yeah so the the reason why i call it like the kind of dodgy half law is that people kind of dispute it a little bit in that it has different formulations so some people say you can never cool a system to absolute zero um, and some people say, well, actually, what it means is that you can't call a system to absolute zero uh, in a finite amount of time. So there's a kind of uh, debate about how to understand the law, particularly how to understand it when we think about things from a quantum perspective. So the third law, third law, third law, third law, just gets pushed to the side a little bit. And what is absolute zero? So absolute zero uh, on the Kelvin scale is about uh, minus 273 degrees Celsius. So that, that's the kind of coldest uh, anything can get to. So my next question is about how we know these laws are true, because we have, I think, a general problem in physics, right, mm-hmm. where if we have a statement we want to make about the universe, then unless we check everything in the universe, how can we clarify that that statement is going to be true for all boxes of gas? Mm-hmm. How are we finding these laws if we can't then do all of the experiments? Right. This is a really interesting question about how science works. Like the example that often comes up in philosophy of science lectures is normally we think of a law as saying all somethings do this particular thing, like all swans are white. And then you say, well, how can we confirm that law and know it to definitely be true? because we can't go and check all swans. Yeah. And then people say, well, I, you know, all the swans I've seen around here, they, they look like they're all, all white. Um, then obviously people travel to Australia and they see that there's in fact black swans. So then it looks like it's no longer true all the time. Yeah. So if that happens to your universal law, suddenly it's, it's completely negated, right? Yeah, right. The kind of original statement that every single swan would always be white is now false. So yeah, there's lots of really interesting um, uh, questions for some reason they're all about birds there's also a kind of paradox <laughs> about how to understand statements like all ravens are black 
Um, so I don't know why all the, all the examples are related. Yeah, interesting. Um, but to think of thermodynamics, you know, there's no guarantee that it's always going to be true. Sure. Um, the kind of usual way that we think about gaining confidence is, you know, by doing experiments and seeing that it holds. But thermodynamics is a really interesting case for this because we don't think that it's kind of true of every single possible system. We think there might be some exceptions. Um, and Maxwell was a kind of aware of this. So he discussed an example which kind of got named afterwards as Maxwell's demon, where he thought of a creature, perhaps like the fish could do, where uh, they can in fact violate the second law. So the second law says that entropy can't go down. So his example is two boxes of gas next to each other. And you can imagine there being kind of a trap door in the middle. And to begin with, uh, both boxes of gas are at the same temperature. But then the demon uh, can kind of look and see, oh, look, that's a kind of particularly fast moving molecule coming through and let it let it through the trap door. But when it sees the slow moving molecules, it doesn't let them through. Mm -hmm. So the demon can kind of be a bit selective about which molecules are allowed to go in which, uh, which direction, such that you end up with a temperature difference. And one feature of that is that the, the entropy will have then gone down. So that then means that you've got a violation of the second law. You can use that to kind of hook it up to a piston and do work and run your steam engines and get kind of useful energy out in a way that uh, the second law normally says isn't allowed. So th th there's these kind of general questions about how do we know our theories are true? And then there's like particular worries for thermodynamics. Thermodynamics. I want to drill more into this concept of entropy mm -hmm. um, to, to talk about why it is that systems get more chaotic over time. Why does entropy always increase? Right. There's a really, really good question. So the idea that entropy can only increase has a kind of time asymmetric nature about it, right? So if I was to show you a video and you had a kind of magic entropy meter on your head and you could see that entropy was increasing in that system, you'd know immediately whether it was in rewind or not. So you're like, well, entropy's increasing. So this is the kind of forwards direction of time. Right, so that would look like chaos increasing. My room right. becoming more untidy, my mug of tea smashing on the floor. Exactly. And so you know, if I show you a video where the mug unsmashes, jumps back onto the table and reforms, you'd know immediately that was in rewind. Yeah. And so then the question is, well, why should entropy always increase when it looks like the kind of more fundamental, the microscopic laws are reversible. If I was to show you a, a video of billiard balls bouncing into each other, you wouldn't know immediately whether it was in rewind or not. So where does the kind of irreversibility come from? Where does this increase in the kind of disorder or chaos of everything come from? Because it only happens when we zoom out. Right. So it's only happening at this kind of uh, macroscopic level. Do you imagine every uh, molecule in the gas? And they're kind of bouncing into each other in such a way that they kind of spread out over time. Now you can imagine a different type of demon, what's sometimes called a Loschmidt demon, which just flips the direction that each of them are going in. So you can imagine each gas molecule being kind of flipped, so it's retracing its steps in the same way. Mm -hmm. And if you were to do that, then it looks like your system's going back to an earlier low entropy state. And there's no reason why this demon can't do that from a sort of purely physics perspective. Exactly. So there's even examples where we think that happens. Um, so yeah, the worry is that the underlying theories tell you that you can go back to the earlier lower entropy state. So then the question is, well, why do we only ever see entropy increasing? Why is the second law true? And that's a question that lots of people have struggled with over many years. I have one question which is uh, related to time and entropy. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, 
what came first? Is it that time was the first thing we knew and then entropy is one of the ways to explain time? Or is it that entropy comes first and then out of entropy and out of realizing that systems become more disordered, mm -hmm. get time from that? It's a really interesting question. And it really depends how you think the kind of jigsaw of physics all fits together. So I think Stephen Hawking said that the second law is kind of a tautology. Of course, uh, entropy increases as time goes on because we define the direction of time according to the direction in which entropy increases. Yeah, not really saying anything. Right, because that's how we've understood time. I, I don't quite agree with that. In that you know, there's lots of other theories where we don't talk about entropy, where we still talk about time. So from my point of view, I think uh, time has to come first. There's a kind of nice uh, metaphor that Hugh Price uses in this lovely book on the philosophy of time, where he says, you know, people are worried about the direction of time. But really, as we think of things getting more disordered or more chaotic into the future, that's a kind of a direction in time. So you can think of the difference as being like whether you've got a table. Yeah, the table is meant to be like time that's asymmetric on one end of the table. Or you can think of it as the things on the table that change as you go along the table. So instead of the table getting wider, for instance, I don't know, you have more cutlery on one end than you do on the other. So it's the contents, the things that are happening in time, those are the things which are asymmetric. So it's not that time itself has this asymmetry associated to entropy, which is what it would have if we define time in terms of entropy. The two things would be kind of interwoven in such a way that you couldn't untangle the two. Sure. You can think of the kind of asymmetry of the contents as it changes uh, in one direction along the table as this kind of asymmetry in time. So we've already got time. And then as it kind of goes on in one direction, we see that entropy increases. So I like to think that time came first and then entropy. And in the table analogy, we're running along the table, right? Exactly. And so we, we go from the kind of beginning where things look less disordered, there's less chaos to the direction where there's kind of more, more chaos. The basic concept of entropy, right, is that systems get more chaotic. Mm -hmm. I also know that I can tidy my room and it can become less chaotic. You know, that is a functional thing that I can do. Uh, but that is that is reducing the entropy of the system, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, obviously, tidying your room is a, a silly example. But for example, uh, humans exist and humans have incredibly complicated, interesting brains right. that, you know, we don't fully understand yet. But humans didn't always exist. And so it feels like on our planet, more complex things have emerged from very simple things. Right, that's a really interesting question. There's several different things to pick apart, right? So um, we talked about how the second law of thermodynamics defines something called entropy and that was always increasing. Um, but there's also other definitions of entropy. So when we think about uh, disorder increasing, that's you know another slightly different concept. There's all these different versions of uh, entropy and working out how they all fit together is a puzzling question. Whether a biological system that seems to be very ordered is a counterexample to the second law depends on whether you think the kind of thermodynamic idea of entropy applies to those systems or whether just something kind of uh, similar applies. So for instance, when Shannon uh, was coming up with his theory of uh, communication, so what we now think of as information theory, um, he had a, a formula which he ended up calling entropy uh, because uh, von Neumann, who's a famous quantum physicist, said oh, you should call it entropy because there's a very similar expression in statistical mechanics and quantum mechanics, um, but nobody knows what entropy is. And so if you call it entropy, you'll always have the kind of upper hand in a debate because no one will really know what you're talking about. So. There's an interesting question of whether these biological systems that seem to have low entropy, whether that counts as thermodynamic entropy or not. 
But even if we focus on only ones we think of thermodynamics as applying to, we see lots of systems away from equilibrium. So we see them away from maximum entropy. Mm-hmm. The universe is not just built from this one big mush of random particles. Yeah, sometimes that's called the heat death of the universe when everything comes to be kind of all the same temperature. And thankfully, we're not there yet. So not there yet. It's not quite reached heat death. Um, so, so, yeah, there's lots of systems that aren't at maximum entropy. So the kind of explanation for that is often taken to be that we started a very long way away from maximum entropy. So at the kind of beginning of the universe, things had a very low entropy. And so even though that entropy is increasing, we've still kind of got further to go. So we have lots of systems, like you say, that are away from equilibrium. And those perhaps don't violate the second law if we think of them as having a different type of entropy. So you tidying your rooms, not kind of showing that Eddington was wrong to have so much faith in the second law. It's just a kind of a local reduction that you might think is compensated for by increases elsewhere. But in general, we think of biological systems as being able to take things away from equilibrium and so have lower entropy, but kind of go in the direction of increasing entropy. So by that metric, we'd all be heading very slowly towards this heat death where everything is maximally spread out and everything breaks down into a kind of general particle mush, right? Right. To think that everything's going to do that requires thinking that thermodynamics will apply to everything and we might think that there are some examples where it doesn't apply yeah so yeah it's an interesting question like to what systems does thermodynamics apply um yeah yeah and i think it's a contentious one i think einstein said that thermodynamics is the only theory of universal content that will never be overthrown or something um he kind of qualified it with to the systems that it applies to have a man Einstein you know he, he put in the right qualifications to make it true but yeah the idea was that you might not think that it applies to every single system in the universe and then perhaps uh, the heat death would only kind of occur if you think of every system as being described by thermodynamics so we'll cross our fingers that that is not the case uh, <laughs> but don't worry if anyone's listening and is worried about this we do have quite a while <laughs> I just want to briefly go back to this question about as you're scaling outwards you you see suddenly that entropy is only going in one direction but on the Mm -hmm. micro level it looks like it could go either way yeah and you said that there were some attempts to solve this problem Mm -hmm. and i'd love to know what they are right so this is sometimes called the paradox of irreversibility how do you get out irreversibility and i think uh the answer is that you have to start off with your system in a particular initial state so the example that's sometimes used is imagine that you've got ink drop and you're putting it into a glass of water yeah it looks like the ink is spreading smoothly out your glass of water goes from being completely clear to then being kind of pale blue throughout for instance yeah but really you know that it's not like the amount of ink is increasing what you think's really happening is instead of being a kind of round blob that it was to begin with it's kind of uh, fibrillating out into little thin wisps throughout the whole glass And so that's the kind of analogy for entropy increasing. So it looks like on the macroscopic level, the kind of zoomed out level, the entropy is increasing when we see that the glass changes color. But when we zoom in, we see that really the volume of the ink blob remains the same. And the volume of the ink blob is in a certain sense, similar to the amount of entropy. And so at the microscopic level, there's a, in a way, a directionality to it, right? It's gone from being like all in one area to spread out, even though its volume remains the same. So the way to reconcile the kind of things can go either way at the lower level with the things going only in one direction at the higher level or the macro level is that 
things start off in like particular initial states. So things start off in like nice ordered states. And so because they start in these initial states, which are called a low entropy in a certain sense, then they kind of go in the direction of higher entropy over time. So the time asymmetric ingredient in order to get out a direction from no direction is the special initial condition. Gotcha. So you have to state that when you're looking at systems to which thermodynamics applies. Yes. I wasn't expecting such a coherent answer to that question. (laughs) So often it's like, oh, nobody knows. Yeah, there's still lots of controversy about how exactly you should think about the initial conditions and when to apply them. But I think that's the kind of key time asymmetric ingredient. Is that why the village witch thing comes about? This idea that thermodynamics is actually quite a weird part of physics. So part of the reason is that in the case of quantum gravity, people think that perhaps we can talk about black holes as thermodynamic objects. So we can assign a temperature to them, just like you can assign a temperature to your cup of tea. I was going to ask what it would mean for a black hole to have a temperature. Um, The reason people think that black holes have a temperature is because they think that instead of being kind of perfectly black, i.e. absorbing all possible things that go into them, they're actually smoldering slightly mm. um, and kind of giving off a small bit of radiation, a bit like coals in a fire or something. Yeah. It's because of this smoldering, this giving off of radiation, that we then assign a temperature to black holes. And this smoldering is called Hawking radiation. Hawking radiation is this crucial result, but Stephen Hawking never won the Nobel Prize for it because there's no experimental results connected to it. And that's because it's at this really low temperature. It means that it's kind of massively washed out by the cosmic microwave background. Mm. So it's very, very difficult to detect Hawking radiation unless you had a very small black hole. And so there's these kind of interesting cases where people come up with these analog systems. So they have examples of something that looks a bit like a black hole in a fluid. So you can imagine... Uh, kind of somebody on a canoe going over a kind of waterfall at a certain point they're traveling so fast that the sound of them shouting back to their friend that's following them they're going too fast for that sound to ever reach their friend Mm -hmm. and so that's a bit like going over the event horizon for a black hole except with sound rather than with light yeah these are sometimes called dumb holes you can't get any sound out Um, and then people look to see if they can find something like hawking radiation in these kind of similar but different systems uh, in order to try and get experimental evidence for them. I really hope there's someone out there in a canoe doing that experiment with their friend, (laughs) shouting back, is it working? (laughs) They've done it with like fluids. I can't quite remember the name of the person, but somebody in Nottingham has done, this kind of called um, analog experiments. There's a whole new field, partly because people were so keen to try and get some kind of experimental evidence of Hawking radiation. Mm. They kind of came up with these analog systems. So yeah, the Hawking radiation was like the main reason people thought that you could assign a temperature to a black hole. And then once you can assign temperature, people thought that the the laws of thermodynamics apply. There's certain similarities between the two, like uh, entropy always increases, uh, a black hole only gets bigger, the event horizon only grows over time. And they thought like, well, if thermodynamics applies to these laws, then that's a kind of constraint that we have for looking for the kind of underpinning theory. We've got to show that we get thermodynamics out of it. We get these macroscopic variables, like the pressure, temperature, and volume that we talked about at the beginning from whatever kind of underlying theory we have. So that's the sense in which um, the village witch is meant to kind of guide the search for other theories. It's kind of like a constraint on what our other theories could be like. It does sound like thermodynamics is a tricky beast. (laughs) You never quite know what you're going to get. 
but thank you so much for talking us through it. It was brilliant. A giant thank you to Katie for sharing her wisdom. And to you for listening. Give your brain cells a pat on the back. If you've got questions or comments about this podcast, why not fling me a tweet or an email? That's it for now. Keep physicsing, keep fishing. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.